Well, you may have guessed we're going to talk about ooh, sin's cost. Oh, that's a different topic. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, Tower of Babel. So that'll be our focus. So if you'd like to get your Bibles open at page 10, uh, that could be helpful, but I'm going to put all the passages up. Uh, like Stuart, I'm a bit tired, so let me introduce myself. I'm Jeff Leader. I'm the, the <laughs> on the ministry team here. Uh, it's great to be with you tonight. So before we move on, let's just uh, bow our heads in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through the words of the Bible. And Lord, we pray that tonight we may learn of, uh, of you and of your purposes for us and for this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've travelled a bit over the last uh, 10 years or so. And in 2012, we were fortunate enough to visit the city of Dubai. And while we, uh, while we were there, we visited what is the tallest building in the world. Anyone know the name of this? Burj Khalifa. That's right. This is an amazing building. It is 828 metres tall. Uh, by comparison, Sydney Tower is only... 308 metres. So something that's nearly three times the height of Sydney Tower. It's an incredible engineering masterpiece. We signed up and took the tour to the observation deck. And uh, on, on the way through, they have all these sort of exhibitions and displays of how the Burj was built and all the engineering things that had to be considered to get a building up that tall and uh, things like uh, taking care of wind and wind shear and all that kind of stuff. So it was quite interesting to a, an inch person with an engineering background. How did you find it, dear? Boring? Yep. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I liked it. So anyway, at the observation deck, uh, that's the view. Now, we're looking at probably 60, 70-storey buildings down there. <laughs> um, it's just an amazing view. But what's even more incredible, from the observation deck, which is 580 metres above the ground, when you look up, there's still 40 floors above you. And uh, it's just amazing. So there's the observation deck. That's where we were. Um, so that's the Burj Khalifa. It's an incredible tower. And it soars above everything else in Dubai, I'd have to say. And Dubai is a, pretty much a high-rise city. But, you know, people from the very earliest times have built towers. And some towers are built for defensive purposes. They enable people to see a long way off and they could see an enemy approaching to attack the town. Some were built as tombs for kings, as a monument above the, uh, the, the tomb of a king or an emperor. Some were built as elevated places of worship. They'd have a temple at the top. Because if you've built something really high and stuck a temple on the top, you're actually closer to heaven and closer to the gods. So you can communicate a little easier. That was the thinking anyway. And some towers are built as symbols of prestige and power just for the fun of it. And certainly the Burj Khalifa makes an impressive statement of the wealth and prosperity of Dubai and the Middle East. Now we find one of the very earliest examples of tower building in the biblical account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, which we heard read to us just a moment ago. This event occurred something like 4,000, 4,500 years ago. 
2,500 BC. We've got no idea what this thing looked like. Medieval painters portrayed it something like this. It's not finished, you can see. And we'll get to that later. But it was probably more likely to look a bit like that, which is a ziggurat. I think I'm pronouncing that the right way. And that's in Ur, in... Is Ur in... I forgot to look this up this afternoon. Iraq or Iran, in, in that part of the world. And uh, that's how it looks today. Now, the story of the Tower of Babel and the confusion of the languages, this account in Genesis 11, is rather unique in the ancient world. We've got stories about the creation event from other traditions and cultures. We've got stories of a worldwide flood. But so far, we've not found any other record of uh, people building a tower and then the subsequent confusion of the languages. It's a unique and very special biblical account. Now, the situation described in the first four verses of chapter 11 is pretty straightforward, but it's worth repeating. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. Statement. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, hey, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used, and this is a bit like a bit of a side comment, they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, the plain of Shinar, let's just back up a little bit. Uh, there it is there, a bit of a blurry map of the Middle East. Um, it's in Mesopotamia, or modern-day Iraq. And if I just change the map, that's where Babel was located. And Babel, hadn't sort of connected the dots, is, it became known as Babylon. Babylon, and that's where Babylon is, even today. Now, the reason for using bricks was that stone was pretty scarce in that part of the world. But the bricks they made were just not sun-dried bricks. You know, they took the mud and the straw and they leave them, put them in a mould and leave them in the sun to dry out and build houses. Trouble is, they tend to erode a bit over time. Uh, like when it rained, they'd start to wash away. So. But these bricks... No, there was, they were baked in a kiln. Here's a picture of what they would have looked like. But even when they, they were baked in a kiln, they were still fairly porous. They sucked in water. But when they used tar between the bricks, the tar actually, so the bricks absorbed the, the moisture out of the tar and that, that gave a lot of strength to the bricks. And one uh, thing I read, was the, the writer said they were like iron. They were really incredibly strong. And so this brick and tar mortar building technique enabled them to build fairly substantial structures and gave them the ability to build a tower. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> so then, just getting back to our story, the people said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now these guys have got a common language so they can communicate with each other, they can plot and plan. And they had a common determination to build themselves a city. And in that city, they included a tower, part of the design. I don't know if they had a master plan, but this is what they were going to do. And this tower was going to be so tall, it would reach the heavens. 
Now, why do they want to do this? Well, you find the answer there, and here it is, verse 4. So that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be respected. And they're united in that desire to make their own honour and glory paramount. This is their focus. And they had the skills, they had the technological ability to build something wonderful, something spectacular. And they would do it themselves without any outside assistance. But notice there is something else going on here as well. The passage tells us that they are seeking to avoid being scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see, underlying this building project is a fear of what the future might bring if they kept moving and spreading. You know, I can imagine what they thought. Who knows what dangers and perils lay ahead of us down the road? At least we're sort of safe and secure here. And they like the security and the comfort of being together, building houses and the town so they'd be um, comfortable um, in this place. And so they attempted to secure their own future as, as a unified community, isolated and protected from the rest of the world about them. In other words... Their city was their place of security and the tower was their symbol of success. It was their symbol of pride. And they themselves were the authors of their security and success. They did it themselves. But notice there is nowhere any mention of God. And it's at this point that we're told with deep irony that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Despite building this great tower that was going to reach to the heavens, it is still minuscule in comparison to the God who created the whole world and, in fact, the whole universe. And it's as though God kind of looks down from his high place in heaven and out of the corner of the eye, his eye catches a glimpse of this, this building project going on down there. It's just, it's just the comparison between the magnitude of God and this tower these guys were attempting to build. And so we see that God then descends to check it out. And so he says in verse 6, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And it seems like you can imagine some sort of consultation Uh, takes place amongst the Godhead or some angelic um, council. And a decision is then made to descend again for judgment. And God says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now, it's important to understand what's going on here. It's not that the unity of the people in itself is a problem, but what motivates it and empowers it Human unity here is for the purpose of isolation and self-preservation and self-glorification. And you know, such unity goes against God's express purpose of 
filling the earth and subduing it. This was the instruction God gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Go and multiply, fill the earth and rule over it. And then in chapter 9, God speaks to Noah. He says, be fruitful and increase in number and thank you, fill the earth. Yeah, we see this thread going through of God's um, instruction to the people to fill the earth. He wanted to scatter them throughout the whole earth. But here these guys are sort of closing in on themselves, erecting a wall around themselves and staying put. And this Babel account occurs not too long after the flood. So this is, should be fairly recent in their minds. But what the people here are saying, uh, <laughs> we don't like God's plan. They want to stay in one place. They didn't want to move around. And as a result, they are in effect ignoring God's directive and basically disobeying God. So God judges and he acts. But again, notice how gracious God is in judgment. While his judgment does indeed create difficulties, particularly if you're trying to build a building, you can't understand each other. You notice his judgment actually works towards um, preventing projects, projects that are carried out by self-serving, self-serving united people, and he makes it so that they've got no choice but to obey his covenant command. And he doesn't destroy them this time. He promised not to do that again after the flood. But in other words, God this creates this confusion amongst people and a diversity in order to help people in their mandate, his mandate, his direction, his command to fill the earth. I don't know if you noticed the reason the place was called Babel. It was because the Lord confused the language. And Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. And so Babel or Babylon uh, is where it's the origin of that name. Now the issue in this passage is that God has a purpose for the world. And that purpose has what you can say is an, has, is an outward focus. And it's a focus for people living rightly with God themselves and the environment. The people in this passage, however, had an alternative purpose, doing what worked for them. However, if God were to allow them to pursue this, the result would be losing sight of God's purpose for them. And so it is that God protects the people from their own self-centeredness by driving them out. They could no longer continue to build their city and their tower. They couldn't understand each other. So the whole project collapsed and the people headed off to fill the earth, the whole earth, and not just a small part of it. Now I want to, at this point, it's a fairly simple story, everybody on board with this story? Thank you. <laughs> I got one. <laughs> but I want to sort of take a look at the broader perspective and look at this story in the context of the whole Bible. And the whole Bible could actually be seen 
as the story of two cities. Oops, I jumped. There we go. Two cities. Two cities have represented two different approaches to life. On the one hand, there is Jerusalem or Zion, which represents a life focused on God and his purposes. On the other hand, there is Babylon or Babel. And that, that Babylon represents a way of life that's focused on people and human interests, human desires. From Genesis 11 all the way through to the closing passages of the New Testament, we're told the story of these two cities. Babylon or Babel is always seen to be under judgment because of its attitudes and actions. Basically, it's sinfulness, to use a technical word. But Jerusalem or Zion is often we see is often in danger of turning into another Babylon, but will eventually will eventually be victorious if it hangs on to its God-centeredness, if it keeps focusing on God. The way the Bible ends is to tell us about the end of these two cities. In the last pages of the book of Revelation, Babylon is seen to be a harlot or a prostitute who is judged by God and driven out of his presence. But Jerusalem is portrayed as the bride who is married to the Son of God. Brilliant imagery. Now the presentation of these two cities throughout the Bible operates as a choice. There is a choice. The hearers of Scripture, the readers of the Bible, are asked to choose their allegiance. Who are they going to follow? Which city are they going to live in? To which city will they belong? The city of the tower builders on the plain of Shinar who sought security in themselves and their own purposes, or the city whose builder and architect is God himself. The tale of the two cities throughout the Bible. As we're going to jump from Revelation to, oh, sorry, from Genesis to Revelation, pretty good. But another bit important biblical theme throughout the first 11 chapters of the Bible, of Genesis, and which will become increasingly evident in chapter 12, which Stuart's going to speak on next week, is that God is a God of mission. And that's the underlying theme for this series of sermons. God's purpose in this world is to seek and save the lost. Throughout the Bible, we see God pursuing this purpose in all his words and, and all the things that he does. What he seeks to do is to return us to where it all began, to a world where people live in a right relationship with him, with each other and the, the environment or the creation in which he placed them. After the fall in Genesis 3, two things must happen before a return to Eden is possible. First, the world needs forgiveness. It needs to be forgiven. Forgiving, forgiven for rebelling against God, for disobeying God. And secondly, the world needs to be told of God, his purposes and his forgiveness through Jesus. God's purpose for the world, for you and me, is therefore always outward looking and other person focused. What's happening in Genesis 11 is that humans are choosing to be centered on their own security and tenure. And as we saw, God judges this self centeredness and forced these people out. He caused, created disunity amongst them in order to help them to acquire the right kind of unity unity with Him. 
and his purposes. Then when we turn to the New Testament, we find the same message occurring again. And we see that God's purposes haven't changed. They do not change. He wants a relationship with people. He wants people to know him and to be reconciled to him. And the only way this is going to happen is for people to go out and fill the world with the message of salvation, the gospel message, the message of new life in Jesus. And we see Jesus um, underlying this in his last words to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 19, when he said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' last words to his disciples go <laughs> where? Into all the nations. Tell them about the offer of salvation that is on offer now. So just holding that in your minds for a moment, we then can turn to one of the other great Bible passages that talks about languages. The events of the day of Pentecost after Jesus had risen. We read this account in Acts chapter 2. Jesus had died, executed on the cross, he'd risen and then some 50 days after the Passover event, after his, after his um, execution, crucifixion, um, Jesus, sorry, 40 days after, Jesus rose again, ascended into heaven, and then the disciples, catch this, where were they? They were all huddled together in a room. Didn't Jesus just say to go? <laughs> and here they are collected together in a room. Happening again. But then God sends his Holy Spirit and all of a sudden they're filled with his power and the ability to speak in different languages. They burst onto the streets of Jerusalem telling people about Jesus in their own native languages. And so it's, almost, it's a, like a symbolic reversal of, ba- of Babel, this Pentecost event after Jesus had risen. And we see the people united in their purpose. And what happened then in Jerusalem? The numbers of people who became Christians grew and grew. There was thousands of them. But as we read the pages of Acts, we see a similar problem occurring. And then the, the believers were gathered together. They were looking after each other. They were fellowshipping in each other's. Uh, homes that are worshipping together. It was a great time. But they were still in Jerusalem. And it's not until we, see, we read in Acts chapter 8 when Stephen is stoned, becomes a martyr, and a persecution arises in Jerusalem and, and the surrounding areas. And what do we read in um, Acts, Acts 8? The people were scattered because of this great persecution that rose. And what happened was that persecution forced the early believers to travel to the ends of the Roman Empire, taking the good news of Jesus with them. The gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire. Amazing stuff. But God intervenes. You see how God intervenes to 
either confuse the languages at Babel or fill them with the Holy Spirit to force them to go out in the streets and tell the, um, the people the good news or a persecution arises and forces people out to move out to fill the, fill the earth with the gospel. I love seeing these repeating themes throughout the Bible. It just builds on the message, just reinforces it. So what about us? Let's bring this home. As we've seen, constructing and possessing buildings is always a risky venture for the people of God. God's people are like all people on earth. Although we know we should pursue God's purposes, we sometimes slip back into wanting what ordinary people want, and that is security, comfort, and tenure. The evidence for this can often be seen in our attitudes towards our careers, towards our money or finances, can be seen in our relationships, our families, in church buildings and the like. And this shift away from centering on God and his purposes and becoming inward-looking is often slow and subtle. It's not dramatic, say, be awake up to it, but it is just develops over time. But it is very real, and the result is that we don't do what God brought us together to do. We fail to fill the earth and subdue it through the preaching of Christ crucified. And instead of going to all the nations, what do we do? We stay at home and focus on building comfortable houses careers and families and church buildings. Don't get me wrong, it's, it's not that these things are wrong in themselves, but simply that we can sometimes give too much importance to them. And yep, yes, there are risks and dangers in stepping out of our comfort zone and following God's will for our lives. But let me assure you from personal experience, it is worth it, absolutely worth it. When I was 39, I left a well-paid, comfortable engineering job to pursue full-time training for ministry. It was a risky step, but I believe God was calling me into this particular line of work and I wanted to serve him with all my heart. And he's taken me and Kathy from the kids on a journey over the last 20-plus years, and it's been the adventure of a lifetime. I've met some amazing people along the way, shared some incredible experiences. I've seen God work in the lives of people in a way that I'd never have experienced, would have experienced otherwise. He even took us to Africa on several occasions uh, to share with the people in Uganda, which was just an unbelievable experience in itself. I don't know what your journey is. I don't know where God's taking you on your journey. But be aware that he may call you to step out, step out of your comfort zone. And, uh, and that may be just talking to your neighbours, inviting them to um, the open house event next week, talking to somebody at work. Just opening up those lines of communication, make that connection so that you can start to communicate and talk about your life, your experience, your journey with Jesus. Yeah, it's risky. That, that's what being a Christian's all about. We need to be bold for him. 
because God wants us to become fully committed disciples of Jesus. And to pick up the tree brochure, he wants us to be faithful, adventurous, compassionate and enduring. Faithful, following our Lord Jesus. Adventurous. Hey, life is meant to be an adventure with the Lord. Not always easy, and he sometimes takes us to some hard, sad, tragic places, but he'll also take us to the mountaintops. He wants us to be compassionate. He wants us to care about people. And again, that's stepping out of our comfort zone, going into the world and caring and loving people as Jesus loved all sorts of people. And he wants us to endure. He wants us to last. He wants us to run the race to the end and cross that finish line, knowing that his arms are open and welcoming us at the end of our journey through this life. The question is, whoops, not the Caring Connect cards just yet, will we trust God and risk the journey he has before us? Will we trust God and take a risk and dare step into a life of adventure with him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for offering us the gift of salvation that you've freely given to us, that you've enabled through your death on the cross. Our Lord, help us to put our faith in you and follow you wherever you may take us, wherever in the world you want to take us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be prepared to step out, to reach out, to go out. Knowing that you will sustain us, you will equip us, you will empower us to do whatever you want us to do and achieve in this world. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.